I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mark Boris. My guest this week calls herself an accidental entrepreneur. Carolyn Mee is the founder and director of SoundScouts. Now, SoundScouts is a health tech company focused on the delivery of accessible, fun, and affordable hearing screening, particularly for children, but it can be used for anybody. SoundScouts' flagship product, which was developed in collaboration with the National Acoustic Laboratories, is an easy-to-use mobile game app that uses advanced scientific principles to detect a range of hearing problems in kids. Carolyn originally started out working in film and TV as a presenter. She was a producer and she was a director. And it was while doing a diploma of digital tech that she came up with the idea for Sound Scouts as her final assignment. Having kids herself who had to have hearing checks, Carolyn knew the process was long and disengaging, so she wanted to create a game to test hearing in kids where the game itself was used as a data capture tool. Having put together all the pieces for the idea conceptually, she applied for grant funding and was granted $50,000 to develop the prototype for Sound Scouts, which launched in 2015. I want to ask Carolyn how using intuition and creativity from her experiences in production and TV presentation can leapfrog your product and create opportunities outside of the usual remit of what she's used to doing. And from that, of course, we learn how remote access is providing hugely beneficial outcomes to Sound Scouts. It's really interesting to hear what Carolyn says about her upbringing, how then ended up going into her experiences and building some skills, and how she takes that right into a brand new territory, a digital territory, creating a better outcome for people who are hearing impaired. It's a great idea. It's an even better execution of the idea. So let's get into it. Carolyn Me, welcome to The Mentor. Thank you, Mark. Great to be here. We're going to talk about your business, Sound Scouts, a little bit later. Um, I downloaded the app, but I haven't tested my hearing. Um, but it's meant for kids, isn't it? It was designed initially for children, but we've had a lot, tens of thousands of adults actually do it. So what we find is that uh, parents typically test their children and then it piques their interest. So then they end up testing themselves. So it's quite fun because you get this whole family profile of, of, of hearing. I'm actually very curious to know about what the cures are, but I want to go back. I want to peel it right back. Um, 
I read your bio and uh, it said that you are at university originally doing a science degree. I was doing a communications degree. You were doing comms. Yeah. yeah. So at that pivot point when I finished high school, I had to decide between science right. and communication. Why did you have to decide? Well, I'd done maths, uh, three in maths, physics, chemistry. I absolutely loved the sciences, yep. but I loved communication and I love uh, I love media and the idea of, you know, just being creative, I guess, particularly. And so it came to that point where it was like, shall I do a science degree or shall I do uh, a, an arts degree majoring in, in communication? It's funny communication because that's what hearing is all about. Um, you can't communicate unless people can hear you. Um, or maybe you can, but you know what I mean, like, unless you can read sign language. But like generally speaking, the average communication is speaking and hearing. Um, and that's where you ended up. Uh, but at a young age, at a high school age, you were able to articulate and or at least theorise the difference between communication uh, study, further education communication versus further education sciences. That's pretty unusual. What drove that? I mean, where'd you get that from? Well, my family were, uh, particularly my dad was a great communicator. He, he, he loved a good chat and we used to spa almost, have these verbal spas. And and he'd always challenged me on my thinking. And my challenge was to change his opinion on things. You mean like a debate? Yeah, family debates. So, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think that sort of bred in me this, um, I guess, mode of always challenging and, and wanting to discuss things and tease things out and, and test my own thinking. And I think when it came to what will I do next, I, I think I wanted to take that forward. And so journalism and just the field of, of media and communications was always appealing. But yeah, it just was difficult to decide because I, I did have that love of science. I mean, chemistry, I had the most brilliant chemistry teacher in, in high school. And I have to, you know, shout out to all the teachers out there who breed um, a love of, you know, of a subject in their students because it, it's really a priceless thing that they do. But yeah, when it came down to it, I thought, am I the person who's going to sit in a white coat in a lab? And work with not specimens, talk to anybody. and not you know, or yeah, and that's what it came down to. Really, I thought, no, I need to be around people. And it's, it's interesting um, how your communications degree, your study, I presume what you're talking about here is a, a line of study that would have got you into a way of becoming a journalist, for example, or going into media at yes. least. Yeah. Yes. Are we that, talking about that? Yeah. yeah, yeah absolutely. Did you, did you, so I did work experience at TUE and uh, I remember doing work was experience it, who with was Larry Emder. Who, who was at TUE in those days? Oh, was sorry. it uh, John Laws? Jonesy? Yeah, probably. It was, uh, I can't actually remember. It was so, it was back in the uh, 80s. So it was a long time and what ago. What type of person um, did, did your dad and mum as yeah. well, but did, did they raise, I mean, like, because my experience with journalists, this, sound, this is going to sound very generous, but it is my experience, um, is that they're very um, centre and or to the left, um, unless you're at Sky, then you're to the right. <laughs> um, and uh, they're very um, cause-related. You know, they, they like to build a cause and or profess a cause and or prosecute a cause. And my memory of people who have been good at it and or have done it have come from families who were who are similar 
who do debate issues mm. or who have awareness within the family environment about issues, important issues, family issues, global issues, societal issues. Are they the sorts of, is that the sort of experience you had? We were a bit of a mix because my dad came from a working class, you know, background. He he was a bricklayer and then uh, bought into taxis and he just had the strongest work ethic. So he would get up at seven, go and do a day's bricklaying, come home and then go out and drive the taxi until late at night. So he, I think what he bred in uh, myself and my brothers was this incredible work ethic. But he also, so he was, you know, he's someone who you would have expected to be left, but he believed strongly in a person's right to build up wealth. And so I think he bred in me the combination of understanding that, you know, you can be born into poverty, but you can work hard and rise out of it. Um, but, you know, we were privileged in the fact that he worked so hard and gave us those opportunities. That was your privilege. Yeah, that was a privilege. My dad's yeah. and my mum, my mum supported obviously my dad in, in, in working hard and I wasn't sort of set up to be a political journalist and, and that wasn't what I was interested in pursuing. I was definitely much more interested in, in the creative uh, side of television production and documentary production and that's what I was interested As in. As opposed to journalism. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you wanted you you really wanted to communicate through film and creativity and uh, you know more interest as opposed to ethically driven and or prosecuting someone else's cause. Yeah, I remember at one point I was working for News Limited and I was working on the Sunday Telegraph and I was standing at a lift and it was uh, the day after the Newcastle earth- earthquake. And the journalist was getting in the lift and he was a friend and, and said, I have to go and interview the 13 families of the 13 people who had died in the earthquake. And I thought, that is not a job I want to do. And that was it. You know, that moment, that was really the end of any interest in pursuing a journalistic, if you like, career. And I just knew I didn't want to door knock, you know, and put people under that kind of pressure and I wanted to do something positive and but maybe they wanted to talk. Maybe yeah, they, true. Yeah. Maybe they wanted to tell their story. Yeah. I mean a bit like the bushfires. I might have had a bit of experience this year in the bushfire environment and I, I initially thought that myself. But funnily enough they actually wanted to talk. They really yeah. wanted to talk about their experience. Um it made it feel better. It made yeah. them feel better. Yeah. My initial negativity towards doing it no, I don't want to do this, you know, like I feel like I'm imposing myself and and uh, it was really about when I, after I'd done it, I'd come back, I really thought, no, that was really about you, Mark, as opposed to them. They actually did want to talk about it and um, it's funny, p- people do like to chat about their misfortune and uh, yeah, I think it helps them. It's a bit of therapy from gets it off their chest to some extent. Um, they want to share the, the bad news. Yeah. I think what happens is that it sort of um, dilutes the experience away from themselves to others. Um, and cathartic. Yeah, it is yeah. a bit cathartic. Yeah. Don't say that because then you're challenging my decision-making and now I maybe should go back. But you're back only young and, at the time. You know, <laughs> yeah. You're exactly. only young at the time and, yeah. I, and I'm talking in hindsight but I'm, and I'm only discovering these things like this year so that's like, <laughs> taking me a long time to work that one out. Um, but like, so, so, but, but I guess what, what we're, we're trying to move towards here is you went from um, studying comms 
at university, uh, which could have put you in, a, in as a journalist or as a creative person around production. Yes. Um, you went and did a bit of journalism, but how did, did you end up getting into the creative side of I did indeed. So media. when I was at university, I saw an ad for Simon Townsend's Wonderworld oh, yeah. to be a reporter. You may remember it. I do it remember was, it. Uh, very... I can't say I watched it, but I do remember Simon Townsend, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was a great character. The first conscientious objector. Yeah. Um, but uh, Was he really? Yes, to, to, he was. Do you mean to Vietnam or something yeah, like that? Yeah, yeah. So interesting, um, very interesting history. Wow. So, okay, I didn't know that. And, yeah. uh, so and, was... and, and, and why don't you explain to people who are listening what Simon Townsend's Wonderworld was because a lot of people aren't old enough to know what it was. Exactly. Yeah, it was one of the most successful children's television shows, uh, I think, in Australian television history. And, uh, yeah, it spawned some amazing uh, personalities, Jonathan Coleman, some wonderful Oh, Jonathan, he's so funny. Yeah, yeah. He's had a great uh, media career, I guess, yeah. following Wonderworld. So it, it was a amazing breeding ground for for people who would go on to have long careers in in Australian television. So what what did you do there? What did you do yeah, on Simon so, Townsend? So I was a presenter, I got selected, which was an ordeal, but uh, you should was, just explain what the show was. Like Yeah, uh, so it was a magazine style show. Uh, Simon Townsend hosted it and then there was a team of presenters who went out and did stories. Yep. And it was a great producing challenge because you got sent out every single day and you had four Four hours to write and direct a, a, a piece of and television. Yeah, well, you did the editing afterwards. Yeah, but, but you still had to yeah, edit it. Yeah, you had to edit it afterwards, and and it was shot in film, so it was. Uh, I've seen the sort of whole kind of um, progress of media in in my time, but uh, it was a great, a great, uh, a great job. You'll appreciate that uh, as a presenter, I got to interview Bob Hawke. Wow, and he was a great character, and. Uh, you know, he he definitely was a cheeky cheeky lad. And so that would have been like early eighties. Yeah, 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 yeah. eighty five, I think it 84. was. Well, Bob yeah. Bob was sort of at his prime then. Yeah, yeah. So he was he was good value and kept it interesting. And uh, the sound recorders was putting the radio mic on him, and he looked at me and he said, "Why can't you do that?" And it's like when the Prime Minister asked you to put the radio mic on here, he was so cheeky. But uh, But how does this prepare you for what you do now? I think it was something my, you know, goes back to my family again of just being able to have a conversation with anyone and whether, you know, that's a tradesperson or whether it's the Prime Minister of the country. I think it's just being open and being prepared to take on any challenge. Can I ask you, is that a, is it just a skill? Because you can develop the skill, but is it just a skill or is it a preparedness to do it? How does someone overcome well, whatever it is that's holding them back from having that preparedness? I mean, why were you prepared to have those discussions with Bob Hawke? Why, why did you feel confident you could do it or is it just, is it what your dad brought, how your dad brought you up? What was it? That's a really good question. Uh, I probably say that I don't have a lot of fear and I, I'm not held back by being too reserved. And I think it does go back to the roots in that, you know, that openness to have a conversation, you know, when you've been exposed to a lot of things and life is just not plain and simple, if you like, it's not contained in a box from a child. It actually just makes me think of um, maybe a strange analogy, but you know, when you're raising a puppy, if you expose them to a lot of different sounds, 
then they're less likely to bark at things when they hear those sounds. But if you don't expose them to anything, then every new sound is a challenge. Is a, a fear. challenge, yeah, yeah. and a, a fear. And I think that as a child, my parents exposed us to a lot of things. We had, in some ways, you know, very normal upbringing, but in other ways, slightly unconventional. And and I think that sort of set us up well for being able to take on things in the future. How do you get the mindset if you haven't had that exposure? I mean, what would you say to somebody who's saying, oh, well, yeah, it's all right for her. I, I just can't do that. I mean, I, I just could not do that. I mean, what would you say to somebody listening? Because this is, and this is Women in Tech Month. I mean, like mm. a lot of women say, well, I can't do that. Like, I mean, I'm going to be, I'm, I'm meant to be an administration person or I've got to work in the you know, the management part of the business, like, you know, because I'm never going to be a leader. Mm. What do you say to someone like that? I think it's baby steps, you know, one one foot in front of the other. If you've not had that background, then it's a case of, you know, put your toe in the water, you know, uh, expose yourself to something different, do something different, challenge yourself and and do it incrementally so it's not so scary. You don't have to jump straight into doing what Carolyn is doing now. That's right. And and I did it incrementally. You know, I I went from my uh, production background and basically how I did that was that I had quite a long career in television production. I produced, directed, I traveled a lot. I came back into the industry, got back to directing and then eventually set up my own boutique production company. But what I found was that it was becoming more and more digitally driven and I knew I didn't have the knowledge and the skills in that area. So I went back and studied and and that was a really challenging time because I had a two-year-old and to go back studying, I think it was like four days, three, four days a week with a two-year-old and trying to still run a business you know, required a lot of organisation. Study two-year-old and a business. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it was an insane time. Uh, But, and I really thought about it because I had to apply, I applied for a scholarship and and I remember being on the phone to a girlfriend the night before the deadline saying, do I really want to do this? And she was a digital specialist and she was like, yes, you do. Well, that's a, a, I want to just pause there for a second. Um, This challenging yourself, am I doing the right thing here? Is this something I really wanted to do? I want to put myself through it. Sometimes the answer to that is the difference between being successful and not not being successful at anything because when we think about the challenge too much, when we think about that question too much, um, we might end up doing nothing. How do you just drop off asking the question or do you just or do you just drop off today and ask the question again next month? How does that work for most people? Because some people go through that. I know I hear them. They say, well, I keep asking myself, should I do this? Can I do this? Is this a good idea? Or shouldn't I just go back and do something else that's much more safe and easy to do? And how do you deal with that? I mean, and when uh, does the question come back to you as well, like the next month mm-hmm. when when you might be tired or the baby's sick or your husband's lost his job or whatever? How does that work? That was the question I was going to ask you at the end <laughs> in some respects around business. You know, well, you asked me the question. Yeah, y- yeah, well, look, I think one of the big questions for me in business is how do you know when to, you know, take the next step? And so I, sometimes I feel like the biggest challenge for me is being paralyzed because of lack of knowledge to make, you know, the next decision or to make a decision. And it's like you gather information 
but you know, is there is there other words of wisdom in terms of just saying just go forward? And you know, if you lose, that's okay, but it's better to make a decision and move forward. I just you know that whole challenge of being paralysed with fear, and and you know, it's interesting that we're having this discussion because that's probably probably the biggest issue for me sometimes. It's the biggest issue for everybody. Yes. Well, but your your issue is about continuing. Their issue is about starting. Yes. And, uh, and, yeah. But, but this same way I come by it. Well, let me answer the question. I, I think your starting point needs to change. So business is not about outcomes and business is not about success, but business is about answering all the how-tos. So that is what your business is. Being in business for yourself, by yourself, or with others, but like in small business, startups, your business every day of every week of every year until the day you decide to retire or sell is about how-tos. It's all about how-tos. How am I going to do this? How am I going to do that? How do I do this? So if you accept that's what the business is about, it's about how-tos, yeah. then you no longer get challenged by the how-to. Because it's just another question is going to get asked and it's going to keep getting asked of you all the time. It's the same in, in terms of startups. I might not know how to do something, but I know why I'm in business. I'm in business because I want to blah. Yep. You know, I want to change something. I want to improve something. I want to do something better. I want to deliver something. I want to make a statement about something. That's why I'm in business. Yep. The how-tos come at you all the time. You don't always have an answer for it. You don't always have a solution and you don't have to have a solution. Some people feel like I've got to have a solution especially blokes, you know, blokes think, oh, someone puts a problem to me, oh, I can't wait to hear the solution. Sometimes you just listen to the problem and just go with it and yes. just, yeah, well, that's that's a pretty bad problem, you know, like, uh, mm. you know, maybe this, maybe that. You don't have to come up with a solution. So yeah. I would answer my that question to you, Carolyn, you won't solve 90% of the how-tos. Mm. They're just going to keep lingering there. Sometimes yeah. you get 10% away, but that's the joy of being in business. Yeah is that those how-tos come to you, the business owner. Mm. And to me, that's part of the richness, the fabric of, and the richness in the fabric of being in business is having those intellectual challenges. They're all just intellectual challenges. They're no different to the very proposals your dad put to you when you were 15, 16, 17 about debating. And it wasn't about winning the debate. It was about participating in the debate. Mm. Well, being in business is, and having these problems arise is about participating. There's a, an old saying is one answer is there is no answer. Yeah. That's the answer. And it's being comfortable with that, isn't that's it? That's the answer, yeah. yeah. Being comfortable. Yeah. Don't think, yeah. oh, shit, no, hang on, that's not an answer. I failed. I didn't come up with a solution. No, you don't have to have a solution. This is not a, a maths problem mm. where there is a formula and there is a solution mm. and you have to go through every single step and get to that perfect solution. So that's the way I would answer that question for you. Okay, thanks. Um, and it's a bit um, – metaphysical or et cetera, but um, it's just a different way of thinking about what is being presented to you. Yeah. Don't think that it's a problem and I need to solve it. Mm. You're a problem solver. Yes. That's your nature. Yes. You were brought up that way. Yeah. It's probably your strength and your weakness. Yes, yeah. And a lot of times we're out there wrestling with our strength and wrestling with our weaknesses at the same time. Yeah. If you step back from yourself and re- recognise who Carolyn is, she's a problem solver, great. Mm. Um, but you don't have to pro- solve every fucking problem. Yeah. Don't think you have to solve all the problems, especially your own. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'll take that on board. Does it make sense? <laughs> yeah, it does make sense. Which is why I wanted to go, always want to go back to, you know, on every podcast guest, I want to go back to where they started from, who their parents were or what were their influences around growing up. And because that usually to me, um, 
moulds the person who I'm talking to. It, and I'll, 99 times out of 100, I I can see what those influences were, were between 12 and, you know, 20. And I can generally work out how that actually ends up being the business that they're in and, uh, and, the, and the type of per- business person they are and the way they approach their business. Um, it's, it's always fascinating. And that's the influence our parents have. Was, a lot of times it's parental influence, could be a teacher influence or a significant person in your life, an uncle or an auntie or something like that. Um, in my case, it was my parents, but also I had this imagination about various sports stars, how they went about their business of sport. And um, that actually formulated um, processes in my mind, which actually put me to where I ended up being in terms of business. So that's quite fascinating. I, but I want to talk to you about your business model I want to ask you about Sound Scouts. I want to know how you went from doing what you're doing into Sound Scouts. What was that light bulb moment and what, what are you guys doing? What's your platform do for people? Okay, I'm back from the break and uh, we're here with Carolyn Mee. Now, Carolyn Mee is the founder and director of Sound Scouts. Tell us about that. Sound Scouts at its core is an app to test hearing. It was initially designed to test children's hearing, but it can be used by anyone. And we like to think of it as the family hearing test. So the aim or the, I guess, the foundations. What's of, the purpose of this? Yeah, design? yeah. It was really, in Australia in particular, children have the hearing checked at birth. And then in most parts of Australia, there's no hearing screening, no universal hearing screening that occurs after birth. So there's some in WA, there, there's some uh, testing in Canberra, but the rest of Australia, children start school and there's a high possibility. There's, it's estimated around 10% of children starting school may have a hearing issue. And if a child has an undetected hearing loss, it impacts so much. Obviously, their learning, their speech, their socialising, it's, it's really a hidden disability and it's something that is easy to fix, but you just need a means of picking it up. And so when I heard about this issue and, and the challenge of screening all these children... How did you children, hear about it? I mean, that- well, I was... Um, doing an advanced diploma in digital media and uh, I actually had to come up with an idea for you know, a final assignment and right at that pivot point where I, I had to, you know, my time was up, I had to action something, a friend of mine who worked in the medical space told me about Australia's first Indigenous surgeon, a gentleman by the name of Kelvin Kong and my friend said he's an ear, nose and throat surgeon and it was really just hearing about uh, Kelvin's work that triggered this flow of thought, if you like, about how challenging it would be to to test the hearing of all these children. And, and my, I've got three children and my two youngest are boys and they both had to have their hearing tested because they had challenges with reading uh, in the early years. And so I'd been through the experience of waiting for the appointment six to eight weeks and then going to that booth and, and it was a really foreign experience. And, and I just thought that's something that could be done differently and it could be done better. And in my course, I learned about something called serious games and that's, you know, gaming technology being used for, you know, for a serious purpose. And yeah, I put the pieces together and thought, well, could we make a game 
that detects hearing loss. And I, um, I was really lucky that uh, the connections through to the director at the time of the National Acoustic Laboratories was really short. My lecturer knew someone who then introduced me to Dr. Harvey Dillon and uh, Harvey and I met and had a discussion. And so you had, you know, one of the greatest scientists and, and experts in Australia uh, hearing this idea about could we gamify a hearing test? And very fortunately for me, he was open to the idea of exploring it. And, and so that really was the start of what has now been almost a 10-year relationship. And, did you get 100% your assignment? <laughs> I did get A's, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so, so you, you completed your Diploma of Advanced Digital Media and uh, your final outcome was to do an assignment on this topic. But probably the most important thing is that you got, to introduce, got introduced to this very um, forward-thinking and um, highly skilled and probably someone who's quite open to talk about things, individual who was a doctor and who was uh, specialising in hearing, yeah? Right. So what did he do? Did he sort of grab hold of your um, uh, your assignment and say, okay, let's do something with this? I mean, because well, you gamified, basically gamified hearing. Did, yeah. did you develop the app or just wrote an assignment about the app? At the time, I just wrote the assignment. So about, about getting an app. About developing the app. So, so it was a hypo- hypothesis. It was a hypothesis. Yeah. And I was really fortunate that, you know, we, we called it a Bible at the time. Of, you know, I guess it's like a production Bible. And I was able to take that and, and modify it slightly and use it as an application for a grant. Uh, it was, um, there was a digital media um, initiative at the time with New South Wales um, government and I got a grant of $50,000. Wow, that's which, great. Yeah, which enabled me to pay for a prototype. And of the app? If, of, for the app, yeah. For, uh, not just the app but all the back end? Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. So it was, um, it, again, it was a big challenge oh, because totally. <laughs> my lecturer had said you have to use Unity you have to find yourself an independent Unity developer. And Unity is a game right. uh, a, a engine. Yep. And 10 years ago, trying to find an independent Unity developer was like looking for a needle in a haystack. So what you're talking about, Karen, just for our audience, so uh, you're talking about a software developer so who worked in Unity language or, that's or exactly platform. The, yep. Yes, that's right. exactly right. And, and my lecturer, who I, Gary Hayes, who I have great respect for, was adamant, you know, on these details. And you know, thanks to him pushing me on that, I developed, I found my developer, uh, Kual Moreno, who's an absolutely... Whereabouts was he or she? I, I found him through a gaming, uh, you know, um, group, if yeah. you like. Yeah. So an online but, forum. Like, but where, where does uh, this, I can't remember his first name now. but Kual? Wow, is he like in Australia or somewhere yes, else? Yes, he, he is. He's originally from Mexico, but he's uh, he lives here now and he's Australian and uh, fantastic. So the government grant helped you develop the um, back end? Yes. So it really that it enabled us to develop uh, the core, I guess, of, of the idea, to put it to the test. So when you're developing this type of technology, you want to quickly create a prototype and just test the principles of your idea. So Dr. Dylan 
laid out what the app would have to do from a scientific perspective. and it's In terms in, of detection? In, in terms of detecting hearing issues. For it to be acceptable, for it to have, so it can be scrutinised. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And it's interesting when you sort of look at hearing checks, he- hearing testing hasn't changed in principle in a hundred years. So they got that one thing. Is that what you were talking? No, no, no. It's more like um, pure tone audiometry. So they present a range of tones. Yeah. And you know, do you hear them? And they present those tones at different frequencies. So is this louder or softer? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, Does your app do that? Because I've been so, through your app. I've, yeah. I've downloaded, but I haven't been through it. Well, what we do, we've incorporated that in in one aspect, but we've also tried to extend it and do do more. So what we do is we do a tone test, but we also do something called um, a speech and noise test. So, you know, without going into the complexities of hearing loss, but there's different types of hearing loss. So there's, you know, middle ear issues. You would have heard about glue ear. Mm -hmm. Um, There's sensory neural loss, which is like a permanent hearing loss. And typically if you've got sensory neural loss, if it's bad enough, you'll get hearing aids. If it's profound, you might get cochlear implants. But there's also something uh, that's more a brain-based hearing issue and it can be caused by something called auditory processing disorder and it's your inability to spatialise sound and quite a number of children suffer from this. In other words, a number of people in a room speaking at once. Yes, yeah. yeah. So a classroom environment's Mm. a disaster for children with auditory processing issues. So we developed this suite of, you know, three tests that were incorporated into uh, the overall um, app and that's what the final product um, It is. sounds more like a PhD, to be honest with you. Well, yeah, I'm waiting for my honorary PhD. I was no, thinking, I'm serious because yeah. that, this is the process a PhD would take. Yes, yes. Um, it, it's been a and long... And you'd have supervisors like, you know, the, the doctors and the, yeah. all the medical people and uh, normally you, you, as a candidate you put your, your novel idea up, which this obviously is. Yeah. Um, it sounds like a PhD trip. Like you must have learned a lot. It must have been a lot of research and all literature and et cetera. Extraordinary amount. How many years did you put... Put into developing not just I don't mean the dev I don't mean yeah. the software but building this whole thing up past past prototype past beta testing um, how long did it take before you could commercialize it so once we we did the prototype 11 uh, 2011 2012 and then I think uh, I actually secured a million dollar grant from New South Wales Health to commercialise and really take the app to the next level. So can so, I just stop you there on that yeah. one, that million dollars? You should tell our audience, what are they, what are they, that's a grant, but what are they, they don't ask for anything back, do they? What, what, what's the deal? You, if you hit certain um, milestones, milestones yep. um, financial milestones, then you, it does trigger payback. This particular grant, the Medical Advice Fund grant, is very supportive of business and they're really it's really about developing New South Wales medical businesses. They don't take a percentage of your business, though. No, no. they don't. Right. No. So they just say, if you get to a certain level, it's a bit like... Um, revenue. Yeah, you, yep. you pay me back. Yeah. Pay me yep. something. Yes, exactly. What happens if you don't get to a certain revenue? Does it just, you don't have to pay back? Yeah, I think some of... Um, some of the programs or some of the things that they, they you know, provide funds to, it's also about public health. And, you know, in, in Sound Scout's case at the moment, um, we're offering something to the public yep. um, and having secured further, well, actually we've secured a service agreement with the federal government, the Department of Health. And so we're able to provide Sound Scouts now free to all children four to 17 
and and we as a company have matched that to enable it to be free for adults at the moment. So New South Wales Health in that instance are, you know, supportive of this being a service for the population. So in terms of the the product though, the, mm. the thing that's within SoundScout, within the app, would you just be able to explain a little bit how it works? Like, um, we don't have to get into the science of it necessarily, but like, what do you do? You yeah. download the app. Um, how long does it take for me to get tested? What, yeah. um, what's the efficacy of the whole thing? Um, is there any ethics involved in this? I mean, could you explain a few of those things? Yeah, I think what we set out to do was to create a test that didn't require, in, in the first instance, a clinician. Because if you just think about it, there's 300,000 children approximately starting school each year. And it would be impossible for audiologists to test all those children. So we wanted to create a product that parents or teachers or clinicians could use. And to do that, it needed to be really simple and easy to, to understand. So it's basically an app that parents can set up, just put in some basic information they can put in their email address to um, so they can get the report at the end. The only information that we require is the age of the child because the core um, testing methodology is age-based. So we really need the age of the child because we use language in the test. So the test incorporates uh, two speech elements and they're all embedded in these game activities. We keep the children engaged. I don't know if you've ever done a traditional hearing test, but they're really boring. Yeah, I have. So, yeah, so we wanted to make sure it was fun. And the, the benefits of embedding the test in a game is you keep the children engaged. So ideally the data, all the data you collect is is good quality. So is it like for a four or five-year-old? Yeah. So for or younger? Four, we've tested down to four. So that's one of the challenges when we first uh, created the product. We, it was actually a 17, 18 minute test and, and that was okay. The kids were quite engaged because we incorporated into a story and it was like the, the kids were watching like a 20 minute, you know, television show, but there was Simon interactivity, <laughs> yeah, uh, slightly different. But, um, but what we found was that, uh, we actually got a lot of interest from schools and that 17 minute test was just too long. So we then had to modify it. And we also took on a lot of feedback from form audiologists, speech pathologists, and and I really pride myself on, you know, staying close to customers and users and, and taking on their feedback. So we then um, changed it and it's now seven to eight minutes long. And so the parent or an adult sets it up, the child plays the game with headphones probably the only thing that we require is a reasonably good quality set of headphones. And then uh, when the game's finished, the parents simply press a button and there's a report that's delivered directly to them and it gives an indication if the child have a hearing loss. And then what happens? And Yeah, so in the report we recommend uh, what they should do. So another one of the things that we set out to do um, was to try and differentiate between conductive hearing loss, which if you've got a conductive hearing loss, you need to see uh, a, a GP and then your ear, nose and throat specialist possibly. If you've got a sensory neural loss, we're very lucky in Australia that we have um, Hearing Australia 
and services uh, provided by Hearing Australia for children are free. So if a child has a permanent hearing issue, they can get uh, hearing aids for free thanks to, you know, to this government program. So we then wanted to be able to direct those children straight to Hearing Australia. So that was one of, you know, the things that we set out to do and also the auditory processing that I mentioned earlier, um, which is a different sort of requires different treatment. So in the report, the report directs the parents to either see their doctor. Do you recommend a doctor? Or that, no. You just say no, what they're looking for. Yeah, just to see your, you know, your, your GP, personal doctor, and then follow that care pathway. Um, if it picks up that they've got a sensory neural loss, then you know, they should make an appointment with Hearing Australia and, and, and go down that pathway. And how do you make money out of this? Where, where's the money come in? Yeah, so originally when we launched it, we charged a, a fee per test. So for a hearing test in Australia for a child, it can be around $100, $120. And so we priced it at $10 per test. So looking at a 10 times cheaper than a traditional test. One of my great achievements, if I can say it, is um, working towards the test being subsidised by by the government. So I always in Australia wanted this to be a free service. And so I really worked hard to get the the government on board. And um, I'm very proud of uh, having secured a service agreement with the federal government. Does that mean the government pay you for every kid that gets a test? Uh, They've paid for um, around 550,000 tests. Wow. Yeah. So, but you they're know, paid for in advance. In advance. Well, that's so how we always like. It's not. It's not a secret. I, you know, that I have a four million dollar, four and a half year contract at this stage with the federal government. And do they sort of put any conditions? They look, look, Carolyn, you've got to test at least three hundred fifty thousand. There are conditions, and um, and we were doing well towards achieving those our milestones, if you like. Um, obviously, the current uh, health crisis um, has made that challenging because we've actually, we've had incredible adoption from schools. So again, hearing issues, schools and teachers are just really in tune with the impact of of hearing loss on, on students. I think in Australia, parents have come to believe that that test at birth is a lifetime test of good hearing. And so while it's an absolutely fabulous test, the awareness around hearing issues has decreased. You know, I'll speak to parents who might have had their children in speech pathology for a year or two, and I'll ask them if they've done a hearing check and they won't have had the child's hearing tested. And, you know, children with speech and language issues, one of the first things you need to do is is get their hearing tested. So I think, yeah, for us, we set out thinking that parents would be our, our core market and I was surprised that there was just so little awareness amongst parents about hearing issues that adoption didn't. It's turned to be teachers. Yeah, it's been teachers. So we have about a thousand schools actively using Sound Scouts, and some are using it to test, you know, random children that they suspect with issues. But now, as things grow, we're seeing more schools test all of their prep kindy classes. Uh, and then what we recommend is kindy in year five at, at a minimum. So we, we, we started to see that really, you know, gaining momentum. So you got yourself um, a testing system, which 
experts have helped you build up. You've got a platform that allows you to express those systems and gather the data and the information. You're not asking, there's not too much friction in it. In other words, you don't ask too much information about the, the kid. So because people get nervous about that sort of stuff. There's not too much friction in terms of people signing up. You've got your distribution because your distribution is through schools um, because that's where the demand is. The teachers and the schools want to be doing the right thing or seniors doing the right thing and they want to identify issues early on. So you've got your distribution. Um, you've got your funding because you've tirelessly hounded the government to do the, put this out as a, as a public benefit. That, that's fantastic. You, you were smart enough and good enough and you had a good enough product too, by the way, to be able to garner a big grant or a few grants, but a, a particularly big grant that allowed you to build everything up and get it beta tested and, as I said, build the efficacy of this in a health sense um, so that you could actually have people say, yes, this is a product I, as a doctor, if you're a, uh, a neurologist or you're a, an ear, nose and throat specialist, depending on where the problem with the hearing is, um, for them to profess this, to say, yes, this bloody thing works, yes. prosecute for you. You've got, a, you've yeah. got someone who's your advocate. It's, yeah, absolutely. You need advocates. Yeah, And absolutely. any business, I don't care what it is, you can be an advocate, I can be an advocate, but people look to, okay, who's the dude who says this is something that's good? Yeah. Who's the person? Yeah. And what is, what's their background? What's, what, what, what's their cred? Yeah. Um, and so you've actually built up something quite brilliant. Um, I mean, I've got a grandson um, who's uh nearly three, he's at three in September. This is the sort of thing I'd like his dad when he gets old enough to get him tested with. I mean, yes. that's the sort of thing you should have. I mean, that to me, every yep. parent and grandparent should be thinking this, but I, I probably wouldn't have done it unless I'd have met you. So a bit like most parents, they're not going to do it until a teacher identifies something and says, well, we do it for you. It's a service the school yes. provides. Yes. And it's free. Yeah. It costs nothing for the school. They could spend a day doing all the kids. Yeah. I mean, right now they get, you're getting tested for your temperature. Yes, yeah. Every day, yeah, kids coming to school. So, like, I don't see why they shouldn't automatically adopt this system for testing, you know, school starters and, as you say, maybe year five or six for the hearing. I mean, it makes sense to me. It's actually very, very clever. Um, women in tech is about me digging out the great nuggets of brilliance and hard work and inspiration of things that women have done in this country particularly using technological platforms to put a product out there that helps society one way or the other. Sound Scouts is another great example of where Australian women have had the guts. And it'll probably go back to your dad and your mum, by the way. I mean, what they showed you and what they told you and what they engaged with to give you the platform or the wings to go and do these sorts of things. And, uh, yeah. Because we get yeah. overwhelmed with what's going to happen in the thousand steps we've got to take. Yes. Or as um, some other very famous people have said, it's the 10,000 hours we need to spend to get something, become really good at something. Yeah. You're not going to find out how good you are going to be or how you get to that point until you spend the 10,000 hours. Yeah. So do your first hour. But if, you, if, you sort of, if you're sitting in your chair at your desk and you're imagining – 10,000 hours. I mean, I, I can't even imagine how many hours that's actually I've done. 10 years of 1,000 hours. <laughs> yes. That, and that, yeah. Yeah, look, yeah. realistically, it's 10 years. And if it's 40 hours a week, that's on average you're going to put, you're going to spend uh, 50 weeks, around 50 weeks <laughs> to doing it or something. I mean, that's because you've got, you know, you're going to do it 24 hours a day. So okay. you got 50 hours, then 1,000 hours, 10 years. It's going to take you 10 years to get wherever you want to get yeah. to. Yeah. Are you around 10 years? I am around 10 years. There you go. Absolutely. The, people yeah. say to me about Wizard. Wizard took me. Ten years. I mean, from conception to selling it, it was a ten-year period. I mean, I 
the business was going for five years, but I t- it took me 10 years to get there mm. because I had a, a, like a long time thinking about it, thinking through working stuff up and building prototypes yeah. and testing stuff. Yeah. And, and I do think that, that you hear these stories in the media of these what seem like overnight successes, <sighs> particularly the young, you know, super young, you know, entrepreneurs who have somehow just, you know, hit, hit upon that magic um, formula. And, and there's a few of those out there, but they're not common. And I think that, you know, those stories can unsettle people in some ways because the reality is like, like you and I, it is a 10 year journey for me with a sound scouts is a medical device. You know, we had to go through clinical trials, years of testing and, and ethics approval and all those things that you, you mentioned. And it, was an absolute journey and there was no way of fast tracking it. And, you know, I think if people set out expecting it to be an overnight success, then that's where things will fall apart because you have to be prepared for the journey, for the long haul, and you have to have that resolve and commitment. And you can't be looking to the cross here and saying, oh, wow, look how well she's doing. She's not taking on something as big as me. She's running a Let's. I mean, I'm not trying to undermine anyone, but she's running a nail salon. She's making all this money. Maybe I should have done that. You can't ask that question. You're on your journey. Yeah. You're heading towards your place. Yes. Yeah. And people have Go different. People have different drivers. For me, I had. Um, you know, I, I often say I've you know lived multiple lives. I travelled. I had my Wonder World days. I ran my production company, and I got to a point where I was like whatever I do next, I want it to have some meaning and I do want to give back and I want to have some purpose. I think, you know, I lost a friend who died quite young and it made me think if, if I got that call and I had six weeks to live, what would I need to be comfortable with that call? And, and I am very confident now that I, I know I've given back and I've done something meaningful and there's been and a you've purpose to my life. Created some change. Yeah, created change. Permanent change. Yes. And you're right. That's that. Maybe is a question people should ask themselves um, when they get into this sort of bind about oh maybe I shouldn't be doing. It. If I told you, you had six weeks to to live, would you be happy with what tasks you've undertaken? Are you going to be happy? Yeah. It's not about can I earn some more money doing this or that or the other or is it going to be easier and how easy is their life? They're travelling all the time or you know Instagram doesn't help these things, but. A lot of the girls in the, and boys in their 20 to 30s, that's, that's a problem they're confronted with all the time. Yeah. They, they don't actually stick to something because they get thinking they're getting behind. Yeah. They're, they're, in fact, they're not behind. Right. Carolyn, it's been awesome to talk to you. Thanks very much, by the way, for participating in Women in Tech this month. My pleasure. It's been a great outcome for us. I really enjoyed this podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks, Mark. 